going to be pe become people whose roots are outpacing our branches, right? We want to be people who care more about what is going on on the inside than what it looks like on the outside of our lives. Being people who care more about the inside of our relationship with God and with people than what we want it to look like on the outside. We want to be people who are truly transformed by the Holy Spirit and not just trying to check some box for Christianity. Now, I asked you all as you're coming in to share some of your thoughts between Old Testament God versus New Testament God. So I see on Old Testament God's side, we've got wrath, just, ruler, mysterious, vengeful, holiness, husband, I can explain. <laughs> okay. <laughs> New Testament God, we have graceful, loving, father, forgiving, grace, merciful, loving, righteous in the middle there. And so what I want to show with this is part of the reason that we are kind of changing directions here. Because my hope is through this series and through kind of this new direction that we're going to go with our sermons is that this no longer feels like two separate gods. That it no longer feels like Old Testament God was this mean, wrathful person and the New Testament God brought us Jesus and love and life. My hope is that through the sermon series and through the next few that we will have, um, and even into the spring, that we begin to understand the story of scripture as the fullness of what it is, as one unified story, and that we begin to see even the God in the Old Testament is so beautiful, and that we are missing part of the beauty of that story when we only pay attention to half of it. I want us to be confident about who God is based on who God says he is, and not just our own ideas. I want us to understand from Genesis 1 through Revelation this whole unified story of scripture. And so for these reasons and many more, we decided to shift directions a little bit. For the next three weeks, we are going to be looking at one of the most complex and rich books of the Bible. We're going to be going through the book of Job. Now, this is one of my personal favorites of scripture, actually. And if you've read this or you haven't, generally what we hear about this book is that it is very confusing. It talks way too much about suffering, and it's kind of just a huge bummer overall. And so what I hope is that through the series, we begin to see the things that I love about Job. I love it because it is so raw. It is so real about what our actual human experience is like. It talks about wrestling with God about these questions. It talks about how do we respond when suffering comes in our lives. It is not a very light and not a very easy read, but I am so excited to dive into it, and that is exactly why I'm up here preaching about this tonight, because if we want to be people whose roots are outpacing our branches, then we have got to move beyond the intimidation and the fear of scripture and stories that may be hard to understand. So my hope is tonight that I will be able to provide a little bit of context to this book, so that for the next three weeks, we can dive into it deeper, understanding the context that it is meant to be understood in. I'm hoping that I can give you tools for how to handle scripture that is very difficult to understand. And then I hope that we become people 
who are excited to dive into scripture and wrestle into it and less people who are intimidated. So I'm going to pray for us really quick and then we will go in. Father, I just want to thank you so much for tonight, for the opportunity to dive into your scripture, especially a part of it that can be super confusing to understand. God, I pray that these words would be your words and that they would move in this room. I pray that students would have hearts that are open and ears that are open to hear what the Spirit is saying. God, we love you so much, and we're so grateful for your grace. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. So the first thing to kind of understand about Job is it is actually part of what's called wisdom literature. So we, through the next three weeks and the rest of the semester, we are going to be going through these books that you can see. Job, 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 Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Songs of Songs, otherwise known as Song of Solomon. And we are going to be looking at these four books. Because when you understand the story of scripture as one unified story of scripture, as the story of God who created humanity, loved us so much and wants so badly to be in relationship with us, when you understand that as the fullness of scripture, these four books seem kind of out of place. When you read them individually, they seem to not quite match the overall story of scripture. These stories, these four books, wrestle with the questions that you can see on the board. What does it mean to live well in God's world? What does it mean to live wisely? What can I hope for on a personal level? And where is God when horrible things happen to me? They all come from slightly different perspectives of each of those questions. And what's cool is they don't contradict themselves. Our Bible, this scripture, we can hold all of these in tension because what actually is happening is they are representing all the seasons of life that we go through. All the different questions and expectations that we have of God when suffering enters our mix and how do we live wisely. All of these in different perspectives showcase our humanity. And they are really, really cool to read and so I'm super excited to go through them. Now, the context of Job is really set up, um, if you'll actually go back one more, this, okay, this is a lot of words. I know I could not make it look any less intense than this, but what is really cool is we have a Western lens perspective of how we approach scripture, and then there is the Middle Eastern lens of how the ancient people would have approached stories like this, and so before I can even give you any idea of context of Job, we have to understand the lens that we are approaching scripture with. Now, you personally may not approach scripture this way, but this is just the generalized differences of how we would normally approach this kind of story or this kind of scripture versus Middle Eastern lens. And so you can see form versus function. We care a lot about how did things happen. And when we understand, that leads us to believe. Whereas in that culture, it would have been, they already believe, now how can we understand why is this happening? We think of it a lot more about how does this apply to me, whereas that would have been how does it teach about God. We pick it apart, and that brings it together. Study to acquire knowledge, posture to be fed. These are the differences, and these all are good things. None of these are bad or wrong or anything. All of these are how we can approach Scripture in a unified way, but we need both sides of that. And so knowing what we know about wisdom literature— 
knowing that the point of those books is not to be these historical retelling of events, then when we approach a book like Job, we apply the same thinking because this book is actually a dense, sophisticated book of Hebrew poetry. Now, doesn't that sound like a lot of fun to go through? What is cool, yeah, there's Elizabeth Hamill is probably one of the few who actually is like overjoyed by this. And one thing that she will tell you also is there are words that are a part of the Hebrew poetry that are only found in this book. It is so complex, it is so sophisticated that it can only really be found here. And so this is why we want to go through this book together. Part of what this book is going to be doing is it prevents uh, or presents a thought experiment that's going to get us thinking about life's deeper meaning. Specifically, this book is going to present this question. Is God wise and just? Is God wise and just? And if God is just, does he always have to order the world by a strict principle of just retribution. Now, as we continue in this series, we're going to go a lot deeper into these questions, but I want us to open our Bibles to Job chapter 1, and we are going to meet this guy. So it starts out, it says, in the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. And then it goes on to describe all the things that Job had. He had so many sons, so many daughters, thousands of sheep and other animals. And it says he was the greatest among all the people of the East. So Job, the story is told from the perspective of this old, weathered man who has experienced a lot in life. What's interesting is Job is not an Israelite. He's from a place that I do not know, not many people know where or what this place would be, but he's not an Israelite. And so what's cool is that his story is something that we can all picture ourselves in. His story is something that we can all apply to our lives. Now the time frame of this book and the author are all unknown. This is all part of the context. But it gives us a model for how to deal with suffering. How to deal with suffering well. How to befriend people who are suffering. And it allows us how we can communicate with God in the midst of that suffering. So while this does not give us answers to why good people suffer, why bad things happen to good people. What it does explore is what kind of universe are we living in where good people suffer? What does that say about God and how he runs the world? What can we infer about God's character because of these injustices? And what does God have to say about all of this? The design of this book is intentional and it plays with the reader about our expectations of God and the world. So we read that this man, Job, is blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He is the greatest man among all the people in the East. He sounds like a pretty good guy, right? Nothing like bad, he hasn't made any huge error in his life. He sounds like a pretty good guy. So as we continue on in verse six, it says one day, 
the angels came to prevent, present themselves before the Lord. Now what's happening here, I'm going to describe as like the heavenly oval office. It's like the command center of heaven. And we see God meeting with all these heavenly beings. And we hear God talk about Job. He says, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Now what happens is there is this character that emerges from the heavenly beings that questions this. Now in some translations, it might say Satan or the devil or something along those lines. But this Hebrew word is actually a title pronounced the Satan, and it means the adversary or the opposed one. And so this character continues in verse 9. He says, does Job, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. He goes on, and Job experiences immense suffering. All of his servants are gone. All his animals are lost. His family dies. Everything horrible that could happen, Job experiences. And while next week and the week to come, we will go deeper into how does Job respond to this? How does he handle these things that are happening? What do his friends have to say about this? What I want to focus on is what is going on here? Because at surface level, doesn't it feel like God is just kind of working with the devil to leave our fates just hanging in the air? Like it seems very confusing. But what the Satan figure is presenting is the idea that Job may just be working the system. Could it be that he's only good and faithful because God rewards him? And so questions are raised through this. Is it really wise or just for God to reward the righteous? What if this corrupts their motives? Should God reward all good deeds and punish all bad ones? Is it possible that God could experience or that good people could experience horrible pain and not deserve it? Can very selfish, awful people thrive and succeed in God's good world? And if so, what do these tell me about the character and purposes of God? What kind of conclusions can I draw about God's character from these kind of observations of the moral order of the universe? So I found this quote from John Walton that I thought really summarized the idea of what is happening well. Because I think people read this story and then they stop reading. <laughs> they read this and like, ooh, Satan and God, no thanks. Pass, go to something nice and lovely in the New Testament. But I love what John Walton has to say. He says the prologue, this whole section that we're reading, is not trying to teach us how Job got into a difficult situation or what angelic beings do or do not have access to in God's presence. The message of this book is offered at the end. We'll cover that in week three. The message of this book is offered at the end. This only sets up a thought experiment because the book is focusing on how God works in the world not teaching us how things work in heaven. 
it continues that the Satan challenges God's policy of rewarding righteous by suggesting that it corrupts their motives and proves them to be less righteous. And this accusation gives this book a really interesting twist. Because while we, and we'll come to see Job and his friends think this as well, we spend a lot of time asking why do good people suffer? And what this character is turning the question around to is why should they prosper? Why should they prosper? You can see that this book is complex. Already it's challenging our ideas of God and how we think the world should work and how the moral compass of the world would work. It challenges all of these things. Now I want to frame this in another story found in the Old Testament. So if you have your Bibles, otherwise it will be on the screen, we're going to flip back to, Gen- or to Exodus. And we are going to be in Exodus 32. It says, when the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, come make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings, they brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and he made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day, the people rose early, sacrificed burnt offerings, and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Then the Lord said to Moses, go down because your people whom you brought out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded and they have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. So what is happening here? What does this have to do with Job and what I'm talking about? So if you remember this time frame, These people have just miraculously been released from Egypt. They have been freed from Egypt where they have been enslaved for generations. They have witnessed God perform miracles right before their eyes. And they are literally at a base of a mountain where God is up there meeting with Moses, where he receives what we know as the Ten Commandments and many, many more. And so they have experienced the greatness of God. But they become impatient. They have even just celebrated the Sabbath, which was used as um, a reminder of the covenant between God and the people. And they are impatient. It says, when the people saw that Moses was so long, (laughs) he was taking so long to come down from the mountain, from talking to God, that they decided they would melt down some gold and create their own God. Now, what's interesting about this is they don't say, oh, okay, this is our golden calf, God. They say, this is going to be the God of Israel who brought us out of Egypt. When I read this, 
I just think that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> How can these people experience the goodness of God and be so quick to make their own small version? Why does that happen? But I wonder, could that be us? Could the Israelites be us? As I invite the band back up here, I want you to think about this. Actually think about this. What if we are making our own comfortable version of God to worship? Instead of being in awe of who God actually is. I think a lot of times we're uncomfortable with stories of scripture like Job and a lot of the Old Testament because it kind of rubs against this idea of how God should be that we create in our minds. We become uncomfortable with this justice side because it doesn't match this idea of God that we have in our minds. I'll say it this way. I think a lot of times we project our own brokenness and our own idea of perfection on to God. God must bless good people because if I were my own perfect version of myself, I would bless good people. But what about when I'm not good? What about when I do make mistakes or I do hurt people? Well, then all of a sudden I really, really want God to be merciful. And in an instant, I change what I want God to be to fit me and my life. What if we are like the Israelite people who are settling for this idea of God that we make up ourselves, that could never save us, could never transform us? And so these kinds of questions are just setting the stage for us to go into Job and into the wisdom literature deeper these next few weeks. I hope that you will wrestle with these questions. I hope that you don't leave here thinking that you have all the answers. I hope that this kind of starts to reframe and at least stir the idea of who do I believe God is? Who do I believe God is? Why do I believe good people should prosper? And what idol of God have I created in my mind that is holding me back from opening my mind and understanding and being in awe of who God actually is. I had y'all write all of these. I think we have an idea that these are separate because that feels safer to us. It feels more comfortable to us. But what if it's actually good news that God is not what we want God to be, but God is set apart in his beautiful holiness? What if that is actually a good thing? And so I want to leave you with that thought. What in your mind, what idea and characteristic of God is holding you back from digging into the parts of scripture that are really hard to understand? From having conversations with your friends about these kind of thoughts? You probably heard we have retreat this upcoming weekend. You will continue to hear about it a lot more throughout the week and there will be more details outside for you to register. But this weekend is going to be a perfect opportunity for you to wrestle and ask these questions. 
come find Hannah or me or Isaiah at retreat and ask us these questions. Let us hear your thoughts about this kind of thing. Because if we want to be people whose roots are outpacing our branches, then we have got to let go of the idol of God that we have in our heads that make us feel comfortable and start to learn who God says he is and see the beauty in that. And so I hope this week you will begin to wrestle and process these questions. And we're going to go a lot deeper into Job over the next two weeks, and then we'll explore the next four books. But this is just to set the stage, just to get our minds rolling about these questions. So like I said, we want to be these kind of people who are rooted in who God actually is, not just the idea of him that make us feel comfortable. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll have one last song. Father, I just thank you so much for the stories that are in scripture that we have to actually learn about your character, that you did not just leave us to our own devices to try to figure out who you are, but you tell us who you are that you are steadfast and slow to anger, that you are loving and merciful and just and kind in ways that we cannot imagine. Lord, I pray that in all the questions that we have and the areas of our life that we wrestle with who you are, that your peace and your joy would comfort us, that we would know that we can go to you with our questions. We don't have to hide from you with our questions. And so I pray that the students that are in this room today, that they would just begin to think about this, to really think, who do they think you are? What are they believing, God? Because I know that you are good, and I know that you are loving, and I also know that you are so much more than we can comprehend, and I am so grateful for that. So Lord, we love you so much. We are so grateful for your grace. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.